It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor at Prospect magazine. And today we've got not one, but two bright minds for you to introduce us to America's new president, Joe Biden, and discuss how this decidedly veteran Washington insider might just lead his nation out of the shadow of Trump. First, we have Prospect's old friend, Andrew Adonis, who has profiled Biden in the upcoming issue and hopes that the incoming president could like Franklin Roosevelt before him, unleash a wave of bold ideas to heal a nation. And we're delighted too to welcome the New Yorker staff writer, Evan Osnos, who's the author of the new biography, Joe Biden, American Dreamer. Evan's been taking the minds of all the various Biden rivals for the top job, as well as his former boss, Barack Obama, in order to paint a comprehensive portrait of a flawed but resolute man who's come through many tragedies to scale the uppermost height of American politics at the age of 78. Um, Andrew and Evan, thanks for joining us, both of you. And I should explain to our listeners, first of all, that we're discussing things around 48 hours before the inauguration. They might be listening uh, afterwards. And so my first question to you, Evan, is because you're in the United States, tell us a bit about the mood. Is there real hope or an expectation or is it, is it more just a case of relief? Well, I am talking to you right now from about a mile away from the White House. I'm here at home and it is a very, very strange time in Washington. I mean, I've been to inaugurations going back a number of years and the feeling in the city, not to be hyperbolic about it, is 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 something that reminds me more of of being in in Baghdad with the green zone. I mean, there is literally now a green zone here in Washington. Now it's obviously a safe city where everything is kind of wrapped up and under control. Um, but that sets the tone for both the end of the Trump agony and the beginning of what it is to come. And I think. As a country, we are, we are too hard bitten now after the last few years to imagine that we're going to easily awaken into something better. But I think there is also a general recognition, and we'll be able to talk in all kinds of detail about the exceptions to this, but there is a general recognition that the origins of our national crisis begin with that one person who is still occupying 
the White House. And removing him is the indispensable step to begin anything that might approximate a recovery. So we've got, uh, depending on how you cut it, I guess, at least three crises. We've got an epidemiological crisis, an economic crisis, and a kind of crisis of governability, which reached its culmination with the invasion of the capital by the Trumpian protesters a couple of weeks ago. Andrew, you've been pushing a comparison with one particular past president who possibly took place in even grimmer circumstances. Tell us about that. Well, can I begin by saying that uh, I've been in politics quite a while myself, and with the possible exception of the guy I worked for, Tony Blair, and I'm not even sure this is an exception. I have never wanted somebody to, to succeed in politics more than I want Joe Biden to succeed at this moment. And what Evan has just said reinforces all of my determination and I hope our collective determination that he should succeed. The fact that we're talking about Washington in the same spirit as we talked about Baghdad, I mean, just says it all, that this is, isn't just a, a presidency that's imploded, it's brought a large part of America down with it too. Now, of course, uh, uh, Trump didn't invent COVID-19, but COVID-19 has done and given him the opportunity, and indeed the imperative, which FDR had in 1932 after the, the, the Great Depression, and Herbert Hoover, who was a president who was also do nothing, I mean, he wasn't such a bad man as Donald Trump, but he was absolutely below the level of events. So cometh the hour, cometh the man. We've got to hope that that looking at Joe Biden as a political phenomenon, and 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 Evan is a greater expert on him, on him as a phenomenon, that he's capable of doing it. Now, my reading of him, but this is, as it were, a question back to Evan, is that he is capable of doing it. And there are two reasons for thinking he's capable of doing it. The first is there is no more professional a politician in the history of the American presidency than Joe Biden. 36 years in the Senate, first elected seriously when he was 27, elected a senator when he was 29, eight years of vice president, there isn't anything that moves on uh, Capitol Hill that, uh, that Joe Biden doesn't know about. And the second thing which I've noticed about him is that though he can be frustrating at times, he's very bipartisan, which means sometimes he frustrates people on his own side and all of that. He has a very good sense of proportion. He knows what the big issues are. He goes for them like a laser and he does deals. And my sense is that the combination of these two a really serious professional, plus somebody who understands the gravity and the urgency of the moment. You know, this is a guy who was born in 1942 while FDR was president, who grew up under the New Deal. He has seen all this before at first hand. Should give us a hope that in this moment of great peril and great crisis, he can rise to the challenge. It's just worth a note, isn't it, on quite how countercultural it is to have a consumer insider take over. I mean, all of my lifetime, Jimmy Carter, we, we, we spoke about, but Ronald Reagan, everyone was coming to town to shake it up, even, even Donald Trump. And here's, here's the insider's insider. And how's that going to work? Well, you know, what's interesting is if you go back to, uh, to Andrew's analogy of the Roosevelt inauguration, 1933, what we all remember was the line, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. But of course, actually, the line that got the most applause was when he said, we need action and we need action now. This was in the grip of the Great Depression. It was you know, literally a crisis, banks were closing and so on. And what Americans were desperate for was some sort of plan, some sort of pragmatic step forward. And there is a comparable moment here. You know, Biden has said to me and to others that he really does see some 
inspiration in FDR's example. And I think sometimes people hear, well, FDR's example, doesn't that mean then that Joe Biden wants to be a, uh, a, a New Deal scale transformer of government? The answer is actually what Biden finds inspiring about Roosevelt is the pragmatism of it, is the idea that he was able to take these steps that could begin to relieve the crisis and then also uh, establish a kind of long range reform. I think to your point, Tom, about you know, the question of, of insider versus outsider. There's a wonderful pattern that really does hold up through American history, of course, where you, particularly in presidential politics, that people vote for, and I'll, I'll borrow the, the words of, of, of David Axelrod here, the Obama strategist, who said to me a couple of years ago, quite prophetically, he said, uh, people tend to vote either for the remedy or the replica of the outgoing president. And he said, and for that reason, uh, I think in this moment, the obviously nobody wants the replica of, of Donald Trump. They want the remedy. And the remedy in this case could mean a lot of things. It could have meant a young woman. It could have meant a person of color. But it didn't. In this case, it meant somebody who has respect for the basic functioning of government, who believes in the legitimacy of compromise in politics, who believes that there is such a thing as a negotiated solution to problems and is not ultimately involved in this business for the sake of personal glorification. And that's how you end up with somebody like Joe Biden. And so what do we think then in terms of Andrew's hopes? I mean, we know that there's a lot of radical people in the Democratic Party who were disappointed that it wasn't a woman, it wasn't a person of colour this time, but just as much that it wasn't someone who could say, you know, I know that America's been rotting away under the surface for 50 years or whatever it is since the ordinary working man has had a pay rise. Um, uh, and Joe Biden, of course, as Andrew said, you know, has tacked and triangulated. And Andrew, in the piece he's written for us, goes through this long list of, you know, voting for the Iraq war and the Clinton crime bill, which kind of put more and more people in prison. Like, how hard are those people finding it to think that because of the moment, he's really going to be able to shake things up nonetheless? Well, he gets a big dividend for simply not being Donald Trump. I mean, you know, at this point, he, you'd really have to go out of your way to reduce people's expectations considering what, what the state of affairs is. But no, it's certainly true that certainly on the left side of the Democratic Party, which is a larger and larger share of it every day, there is real concern about where Joe Biden's deepest impulses lie. I mean, he is, after all, a person who began his career as a candidate he was on the side of civil rights. He was involved in some desegregation protests. And then, though, once he got into the Senate, he became an opponent of court-ordered busing in schools. And then later, of course, he tacked back and became the vice president to the first African-American president. And so some people look at that and say, well, what does he really stand for? I think what you see in that pattern is that he is highly attuned to the movement in American culture and politics and attitudes. And when he was an opponent of busing in schools in 1973, he was representing a district in Delaware, which was very much of the North and of the South, almost perfectly divided. And he felt at the time that if he didn't do that, he was never gonna be able to be in the Senate. And actually at one point he was rated very highly by a progressive organization. Uh, they gave him a good grade for being on the right side of the Vietnam War and on the right side of civil rights. And he said, this is a terrible political disaster for me because now conservatives are not going to think I have it for him. So he is attuned to it. And this is a country that is becoming, and I know it's hard to see it today, it is becoming more progressive. 
every day, just demographically, culturally, that's the direction we're moving. And I think over the long term, you see Joe Biden moving there, but not too fast. So much of this is about pace and timing. And he believes that if he had moved too far to the left during this election, he wouldn't have been elected at all. There's a real dilemma, though, isn't there here, Andrew? Because although, you know, you can certainly make the case that FDR was a, a great um, tacker and triangulator as well and someone who, who, who bided his time. And indeed, in the inauguration period, in the build-up to it, he completely sat on his hands for months, didn't he? Um, so he knew when not to do things and that there had to be a right moment. But then when he got going, he got going with enormous vigour in that first 100 days, Andrew, that you write about. Um, when you think about this guy who might be politically similar in some ways, but is considerably older and not associated with the same sort of energy, what makes you think he might just unleash a, a great blitz of uh, a new New Deal? My sense is that Joe Biden has got a very strong uh, sentiment for his place in history. And he is 78, so he's you know, not got much time to go in terms of, uh, of making his mark. And he does understand the moment. What he also has a strong sense from, when I look at his record, and uh, Evan can, uh, uh, can, can respond to this, is he does understand that there are shared agendas where it's possible to move big time at any given moment. And he's identified those um, decade by decade in his politics. Now, sometimes, let's be absolutely open and frank about it, the big movement hasn't necessarily been to the left. I mean, his 1994 crime bill that was dressed up as progressive in the sense of more police and more order on the streets and uh, a move on domestic violence did, as you say, lead to a big increase in incarceration. And his view, it was very clear to me at the time, is you simply couldn't build a democratic coalition unless it came to terms with this fact that uh, that middle America was was uh, really worried about a crime epidemic. Now, that has a lot, a lot in common with FDR. Remember, FDR is not just what he did before he became president. FDR never opens the issue of segregation in the South. On the contrary, to get all his big stuff through Congress, in, in really difficult circumstances. He has an alliance with the Southern segregationists, most of whom then, of course, are still Democrats. However, what FDR did understand, and I think Biden understands now, is that there is a big imperative to move on this central economic question of economic action, jobs, and fair shares. And that agenda of big economic dy dynamism and state investment and leadership to get people into jobs and to promote greater fairness and to prevent mass unemployment is remarkably similar now to 1932, right up to and including the fact that the first of the big decisions which Congress is going to have to take is these $2,000 checks, which when you think about it, in the politics of before COVID, would have been regarded as little short of Marxism in the American context. I mean, we haven't been sending out checks to each individual here in Britain because most people would think it was too left-wing. Whereas in America, because when once, you know, the American center really gets moving to tackle really big questions, it's capable of doing things which are extremely bold. So if at the, the beginnings of this new deal, this a kind of new New Deal coalition can be put together with some really big symbolic moves like the $2,000 checks, that could, start to change the whole center of gravity of American politics in a big way. And the question back to Evan, because when we were chatting before we started, he said that the supreme master tactician 
is Mitch McConnell. Now, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden go back a long way. I mean, you know, whatever it is, 20 shared years in the Senate. And I noticed, because a big part of my essay, which I drew partly from Evan's book, is uh, the Joe Biden's story, including his a succession of family tragedies, from his first wife being killed in a car crash, right through to his son, Beau, dying of brain cancer five years ago, have been very public. And I suddenly noticed in something I was reading over the weekend, that the one Republican at the funeral of Beau Biden was, guess who? Mitch McConnell. <laughs> so this Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden relationship looks to me to be absolutely central to what's going to happen in the next year. And I'd be really interested to hear from mm. Evan whether he thinks there might be some deals in the making. Should you say it's Republican leader in the Senate? Evan, please respond to that, though. Well, exactly as Andrew said, they have this very long overlapping history in Washington. Mitch McConnell indeed was the only Republican senator who attended Beau Biden's funeral. And I have to say, Mitch McConnell is not a man who is known for his extravagant sentimentality. I mean, he is a person who is almost expressionless. He is known here in Washington as being uh, a kind of uh, impervious <laughs> to uh, any evidence of human emotion. And yet at the same time, the closest thing that he has to a friendship on the opposite side of the aisle would be to Joe Biden. Now, I will announce immediately that might be irrelevant. And the first person who would tell you it might be irrelevant is Joe Biden, because Biden's view is that politics, when you strip away the gentilities, the niceties, all the bits of the Senate that he really enjoys is fundamentally about how one calculates his or her individual political interest. And he does not expect, as he sometimes says, I don't expect Mitch McConnell or anybody else to earn themselves uh, an entry into the next edition of Profiles in Courage. What he says is, I think I have to find a way to make them see that the country's interest and therefore their political interest do overlap with his. To be very concrete about it, there was a moment, you'll remember back, Andrew, of course, you guys remember that moment under the Obama year when the U.S. was cascading from one ridiculous government crisis to the next, a precipice of one kind. It was the debt ceiling or it was uh, all of these manufactured political deadlines. And that we were facing at the end of 2011, 2012, there was a moment when the U.S. was threatening uh, to default on its debt because Republicans were holding out for for making permanent tax cuts. And the Obama White House couldn't make a deal with McConnell. And McConnell actually placed a call to Biden's office in the West Wing and said, is there anybody over there who knows how to make a deal? And at that point, Biden took over the negotiation and the two of them did in fact make a deal that averted the fiscal cliff and uh, it was not something that was uniformly popular among Democrats. Some said we gave away too much, but the reality is we avoided what would have been even more catastrophic harm to the United States by defaulting. So they have a history of it. I think they are likely to find some common ground. But one dramatic difference that has changed over the course of just the last few weeks, of course, is Mitch McConnell is now fighting a rear guard action. He's no longer the Senate majority leader. He's now the Senate minority leader. And that changes things. And, you know, Biden now is in the position of being able to uh, move with a little bit more purpose. As one of his 
advisors said to me, look, you know, we're going we're gonna to move fast and be bold, but we're not going to stand there with our hand extended waiting for somebody to shake it if they're not. It, ultimately, we're going to move ahead in a bipartisan fashion or not. And I think that those are the choices. What strikes me as, as interesting, particularly if you think this might be the end of a kind of 1980 Ronald Reagan to the kind of, you know, grotesque culmination in Donald Trump sort of great arc, um, like the New Deal arc that came before it, um, is whether the Republicans are going to splinter. Because for 20 or 30 years now, they've like acted as a block, which is out of character with political parties in US history. And done all this kind of brinkmanship and impeaching Clinton and sequesting the, you know, trying to bring the government shut down and all the stuff you're talking about. But now they're kind of, after four years of following this guy who's turned out to be the kind of bad one that lots of people always thought he was, they're in a slightly different position, aren't they? And, you know, they must be nervously watching their backs in their own seats and they're about to have a very divisive argument about whether or not they should convict Donald Trump of of all these misdeeds. Um, and does that mean that they're actually going to be a bit more pliable for Biden? It's not just about his tactics, it's whether they are splintering as a group. The party is fractured. I mean, the Republican Party right now is at war within. And, you know, you see members uh, like Liz Cheney, the third ranking leader in the House of Representatives, of course, the offspring of Dick Cheney, who has now made herself a symbol of resistance to Donald Trump within the Republican Party. And now there's calls for her to be deposed uh, and removed from leadership. There will be obviously a, a, a real effort on the part of Democrats to exploit those fissures. And the thing that I think we sometimes forget in American politics is parties parties die, actually. It happens. I mean, it is it hasn't happened in a while. But just go call up the Whigs or the Federalist Party and ask them how things tend to evolve. And it's not impossible that we end up with essentially the, you know, the rump state of the Trumpist Republican Party and some version of the Mitt Romney establishment moderates. And all of these pieces will be fighting with one another. But I, I do, I do, the one thing actually, though, that, that I think is, um, uh, strangely to the Republicans' benefit at this moment of extraordinary conflict is that the, that the most powerful impulse in American politics right now is not unity, it's negative partisanship. It's that the opposition to your opponent is so profound that it can pull people together across tremendous disagreements. Therefore, you may find that Republicans who really have very little in common um, will subscribe to the old principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend and that that will allow them to organize more effectively in the face of the Democrats. So that, I'm afraid, is an outer bound on my optimism at the moment. I mean, in British politics, Andrew, like we've got, like in the years when you were inside Number 10 and it was Tony Blair, it, it, it was a very different mood to that, wasn't it? There wasn't that sort of ultra-partisanship, but we've seen some of it around Brexit. Well, we, we've seen uh, a, a less virulent form of, of uh, right-wing populism than uh, they've had in the United States. But of course, reacting to exactly the same issue, which was uh, the crisis of growth after 2008. And what you're dealing with now is two crises laid on top of each other. The crisis of growth, you know, middle America and middle England, both suffering from the same thing, declining real wages for the first time in, uh, since the war 
over a protracted period uh, after the 2008 crash. Layered on top of that, of course, this massive natural disaster of, um, uh, of COVID. And it was the failure of Trump either to reverse the, uh, the crisis of growth, though the economy as a whole grew, but middle America didn't get a big uh, paycheck out of it. Plus, of course, the absolute catastrophe of, uh, of COVID-19, where, um, where Trump, uh, astonishingly allowed himself to become almost on the kind of COVID denier wing of, um, of uh, American public life. I think that's what it did for him. But what they both have in common now, which is why I sense this is a potentially an FDR moment, is that nobody but nobody can deny that in the crisis that America now faces, and indeed the West now faces, they can't deny that government is a big part of the answer. Because in the whole of the last generation, right through from Reagan via Clinton through to Trump, there was a large part of middle America and the public debate of the United States, as was the case here in Britain, was arguing that we had too much government. And indeed, you know, Blair and Clinton, though in both of their different ways, they were highly progressive. They had to make very ingenious new arguments for, you know, smart government, better government, you know, try to call it by completely different names. We were into public-private partnerships, we were doing all kinds of things, which didn't address the central issue, which was that we need a strong, intelligent state that is actually prepared to mobilize the full resources of the community to deal with a real and present danger. Now, Biden, my sense is, he understands that. He absolutely understands that that's where we're at. And that, I think, is his moment. And it's a very FDR moment because that's the one thing that where um, FDR really turned the dial in 1932, he completely reinvented the whole concept of the federal government in the United States. And the question is whether that's now going to happen again under Joe Biden. I am in agreement with Andrew that we are at the moment of a potential transformation in American political culture. Roosevelt believed, as you know, that the presidency was not just an administrative office, as he said, it is fundamentally a moral office. And I think then to the question of actual transformation, you know, it begins partly with the language from the top, but then the question of what you can enlist government to do. When you talk to young people in this country, there is a very different conception of what government is for. And this notion that, you know, that, that as, as Andrew described, you know, that the sort of Bill Clinton-style Democratic Party of the 1990s, in which all of the body language was towards shrinking government and, and trying to borrow some of the aesthetics from conservatives, that that period is very much over. And Joe Biden stands at a point when people want the government to help them. I mean, at a most fundamental level right now, I think perhaps the statistic that drives this home most clearly is if you go not too far from Washington, if you go to the border of Virginia and West Virginia, Boone County, West Virginia, life expectancy is 17 years lower than it is in Fairfax County, Virginia. That means that you have one place that is on the level with Yemen, literally, these are not abstractions, and then you have a place that is, of course, up with the most advanced in con countries in the world. You cannot have these two places that are side by side and expect to have politics that work. As you know, Louis Brandeis said, the great Supreme Court justice, you can either have radical inequalities in wealth or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. And I think there is a recognition now that the beginning of the problem has to be a fundamental restoration of some level of economic 
fairness and opportunity and that nothing else is possible. And Biden, it happens to be that he has been committed to that idea for a very long time, even when it was unfashionable. And so he finds himself at a moment now where the politics have sort of conspired to confirm his instincts. And uh, I think you're likely to see the, the, the opening for, for, for deep change. But let's not pretend it'll be easy. There's going to be tremendous opposition. The thing I find interesting is that uh, Bernie Sanders and the left of the Republican Party is, uh, is quite pro-Joe Biden. They, uh, clearly, Bernie Sanders has a lot of previous with Joe Biden, too, in the Senate. But also, there looks to me to be quite a substantial shared agenda between them. And there's none of the frostiness between Biden and, um, uh, and Bernie Sanders that there was between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. That's my sense, Evan. Is, is, does that ring true? That's true. And, and, and Bernie Sanders has, has really said it explicitly, actually. He told one of my colleagues at one point, and it, this was one of those wonderful little bits of language that are worth remembering. He said in an interview with The New Yorker, he said, now between you and me, he said, I have a much better relationship with Joe Biden than I do with Hillary Clinton. I love that he just happened to say that on the record. And I think that matters. What he means is that he thinks that Biden takes him seriously. He doesn't agree with him on everything. In fact, they don't agree on a lot. But he takes him seriously, listens to him, tries to build it into his politics. And as long as that's the case, then that's a basis for some sort of reasonable coalition. And that brings us back where I think we should end with just a few more reflections on Biden as an individual. Because we've talked like, widely and uh, in a ranging way about the kind of situation he's inheriting. As you've both documented, um, he's had this enormously tragic life. We've seen lots of frailties on the way as well as all this tragedy, haven't we? We've seen him misquoting famously in the UK, Neil, Neil Kinnock and passing it off as his own words and uh, putting his foot in things and having to step back. But what's his temperament? What's, what's, what's it going to be like, you know, in terms of keeping a cool head uh, when, when the going gets tough? Well, you know, he is a person who bears a tremendous amount of scar tissue. I mean, that is the, the defining fact of his life. He has been through things. Some of it has been enormously successful. He, after all, willed himself into the Senate at the age of 29. He wasn't even old enough to be able to take his seat when he won the race, had to wait a few months until he could be inaugurated. And then, of course, within a few months, there was that wretched day uh, when his wife and his daughter were killed in a car accident. And the combination of those two qualities has really, to me, helped frame who he is at the age of 78, which is to say he is a man who has been humbled by the awareness of all that he cannot control in his life and the degree to which some of it has been the product of extraordinary good fortune and some of it has been the product of just un. un unimaginable cruelty, and that any life, no matter how powerful or how weak, is the product of that combination. And he carries that into his policymaking because he believes that that's what government is here to do, is to provide a facility for managing that reality, that you have to create a system where people can thrive and flourish when they have great good fortune, and you also have to create a system that helps people when the fates put their foot on your neck. And he knows that. He's personally acquainted with it. And I, I actually, we have not had a president in modern times who is as personally acquainted with suffering in quite this way. And there is a meaning in that. We are a country that is suffering right now, literally physically and politically, culturally. And, uh, and he knows of that. And that in itself is probably his greatest advantage coming in.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The, 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 I love emblematic statistics. And the bit of Evans' book I like most was when he was shadowing Joe Biden as vice president to uh, Barack Obama, and he sat in on his meetings. And Evan records that in a typical meeting of 64 minutes, Joe Biden spoke for 55 of them. Now, the two things I think are really interesting and significant about that is his meetings run on for so long. I mean, they're interminable, you know. And this is a meeting on Cyprus. Now, I'm a Cypriot. He, know, he, knew, he really knows his stuff, but he never stops talking. And so the question, which I just wouldn't, would, would like um, Evan's you know, final reflection on, is he's clearly very good at transmit. And indeed, he has a very wide range of areas he's really interested in. Evan said he was personally acquainted with suffering. He's also personally acquainted with large parts of the world, more parts of the world than probably any president in, in history. Cyprus, my country, he's actually been to. Does he listen enough? to be able to take out on what's going on as well as transmitting almost constantly as he does? Well, it is a hazard, I'm afraid, because he comes to it with this tendency to talk a bit more than he listens. And in, in the presidency, all of those instincts are only confirmed because you now inhabit a realm of one in which nobody will ever cut you off. Uh, but I will say that this stage in his life, even today, which is slightly different than when I first started following him now seven years ago, and that, you know, I remember that meeting well in which he spoke for 90% of the time. What's different today is, since then, uh, he has become a bit of a more, a bit of a graver person. His son died after that, and he is now a bit quieter. I mean, literally quieter, actually. Um, but I, I, I will leave it with the, uh, in the words of somebody who worked very closely with him in the White House, who I talked to about this question of talking and listening. And I said, what do you make of it? He said, well, he said, Biden used to in, call me down the hall and say, you know, can you come brief me on so-and-so on such subject? And I would come down the hall and I'd sit down with him and he would then talk for most of the hour. And then at the end of it, I, I would try to get my points in and we'd, we'd get up and walk out the door and he'd clap me on the back and say, great talk, really enjoyed it, learned a lot, thanks. And then 
to my astonishment, he actually had heard me. He had listened, and he would then build that information into his models, into his analysis, and he would take it with him. So in his own way, yeah, we will be hearing a lot of Joe Biden over the course of the next few years, but he will be listening. Well, we'll all know soon enough. Thank you very much, Evan, and do look out for American Dreamer. Do look out, too, for Andrew Adonis's piece on the new president, which is, as you're listening to this, almost certainly already live at the Prospect website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us, as I say, and to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, leave us a rating and review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.